BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to Raising Good Humans. (laughs) I'm Dr. Lisa Pressman, and I have Dr. Cara Natterson and Vanessa Kroll-Bennett from the Puberty Podcast. And so we're going to talk about puberty. And this particular conversation, I just want to go right into language to use, not in a prescriptive way, but like this is the kind of topic where parents want actual words and then they can play around with them to make them sound more authentic. So I want to go into authentic language to use at different ages. I'm just going to rapid fire question you guys. And at the first one... So yeah, it's just going to be so fast because you've got this. <laughs> We've tried rapid fire and it takes us 25 minutes. We so brought, good luck with that. We should have brought buttons. <laughs> oh, that's a good idea. Hit the virtual button. First, I'm starting with the big one. Let's start with a toddler who says, where do babies come from? You're answering as the mother. You're father, answering as the, as the mother. Car, do you want to start with that one? A toddler? Sorry, a three-year-old. Okay, a three-year-old. Where do babies come from? Babies come from their parents. They grow inside of a womb and they come out into the world and join a family. And then if you're talking about, we're not going to do that today, but in general, I guess you would tweak the answer to if you're adopting a child or if it's a friend's child. And that's why I said they grow inside of a womb because you're not saying Mm -hmm. who's and you're not. So that answer just sort of covers the bases. That's usually they've heard that babies grow inside of bodies. And so you're just sort of verifying that, yes, they grow inside of bodies, but you don't have to get granular about who's unless they're asking or it's relevant to your family. And you can always say families are made in all different ways. So sometimes the question is, you know, how do you make a baby? Or how do, where do babies- That's a precocious three-year-old. Co- right. So how do you make well, a baby- Well, we're going to get there. We're going to get there. For but the, where do babies come yeah. from? I also think, and our philosophy is it's never too early to use the anatomically correct words like, I mean, for a three-year-old uterus is a pretty big word, but uterus and come out of a vagina, like those are things that you can say and it's not naughty or inappropriate they're hard words for them to say. So I wouldn't expect them to then say them back to you five times fast. But I think that that's hitting that point is is okay for a toddler. And so once your preschooler, let's say your preschool is asking where babies are coming from and they're not really going deeper, 
but here I'm going to ask what's a uterus. Yeah. Or what's a womb or what's a, yeah. Or where inside. Sorry, what's grow? a womb? Yeah. I mean, you can ask because depending upon how the parent frames it, right. The inquisitive three-year-old and three-year-olds are very inquisitive. will ask a follow-up question. And so, you know, the very simple answer is the uterus or the womb is an organ that's inside the bodies of some people. And that is a place where babies can grow and develop before they're ready to come out into the world. And if you want to add sort of visual teaching opportunities, what you can do is you can put your thumbs together on your belly button so they meet in the middle and your hands point down towards your legs. And if you are a person with a uterus, you can say to a child, this is the area inside my body that I'm talking about. So they have a visual picture of which part of your body it is. And I like to describe a uterus like it's shaped like a pear. So that gives them a sense of the size and the shape of a uterus. So it takes it out of the conceptual and into something more tangible and relatable to the kids. Wonderful. And now, as kids go into their deeper into preschool years, they might ask a few more questions. So we'll just keep on going with expanding the response and with the understanding that for a lot of kids, they just ask a question. We think that we have to share so much information, but actually they just asked a question. So this is not for us giving way more information than they were asking for. This is really about answering questions that come. So what are some typical questions as we're aging into deeper preschool, pre-K, kindergarten? Before I suggest some questions, I just want to build on that really great point and say that if you're not sure what your kid is asking, you can always say, that's such an interesting question. What made you ask that? And that helps the kid reframe or narrow the question for you. So you never have to just throw an answer out and give it a try. You can always try to redefine the question in that way. I love framing that. I, also I ask my teenagers that often. It, no, it's a great. And also it's quite different than saying, why did you ask that? Why might put someone on the defensive, like they've asked the wrong question and that's right. not what you said. So I love that. Yeah. Now I'll stop interrupting. Go ahead. I mean, a typical question is, how do you make a baby? Right. And that's where yep. the sort of offering up different versions of how babies are made, including, and how families are made, right? We don't want to have one narrow definition, but to Carr's point, if you drill down and find out they want to know one of the biological ways babies are made, again, you do want to use anatomically correct terms. So when my kids were younger, they said, how did you and daddy make us? And we happened to have made them in, you know, the most basic biological way, which is put your penis inside a vagina and the sperm comes out and meets the egg. I answered that question. They promptly got up and left the dinner table. <laughs> and that was it. They asked their question. I answered their question. I gave them the correct anatomical terms, and they wanted no more of that conversation. How old were they? In that moment. I want to say they were like 
seven and nine, probably. The youngest did not get up and leave the table, but only because he was like strapped into a high chair and couldn't (laughs) go anywhere. (laughs) But it was, I answered what they asked. I didn't lie. I didn't use euphemisms. I didn't dance around the subject. I did take a moment to like breathe and think about, okay, how am I going to go for this? And I, you know, reminded myself of all of the rules about how you answer those questions. And that was it. Now, I would say if the kids had been four or five, you probably, your instincts would have been to dial back the answer a little bit and go a a little bit more broad strokes by saying, just starting with the sperm and the egg Mm -hmm. um, and not necessarily the mechanism of how the sperm Uh gets into the body. So I think if parents who have four or five-year-olds- Or the life cycle. Yes, exactly. And a lot of people love the euphemism of the seed and planting the seed and the tree growing. I find that really confusing. I, kids, it's, it's a great analogy- if then you follow it up with saying, but there's not an actual tree being planted, right? Um, if you clarify for the kids, but if you're not clarifying, sometimes kids think an actual tree gets planted and they get very, they're very concrete when they're four and five. So Vanessa and I are big fans of just real information, real words, real knowledge. So, you know, there is um, something called an egg in some bodies. There's something called a sperm in other bodies when they come together together. The egg does what's called getting fertilized. That process is what makes a baby, and then the baby can grow from there. So the only comment I would add to that is when one of my children was four, we were in the bathroom where all important conversations happen with children, and she said to me, so my friend told me that if you put a penis inside your mouth, then the sperm comes and meets the egg inside your body, and that's how you make a baby. So at that point with a toddler, I think it's okay <laughs> to clarify Clarifying. how mm-hmm. the sperm, one way a sperm might meet an egg. Um, but I do agree with you. I, and just to clarify for our listeners, that is not one way that a sperm <laughs> might meet an egg. <laughs> for those who don't know, you cannot get pregnant from a sperm going into your Correct. Correct. I could see you pausing to figure out exactly what term you wanted to use for that particular (laughs) activity. (laughs) Yeah, I did pause. (laughs) Luckily, you're a slow talker. So like to the average ear, they wouldn't have noticed. (laughs) But we get to see your face. So we know that you paused. (laughs) I am such a slow talker. So am I. It's okay. I'm also a slow blinker. I've noticed that. You are. I'm a, a slow, slow blinker. blinker. There's like a disproportionate number of times where I'm caught with my eyes closed because when I'm talking, because I blink slowly. I don't know what that I'm says. I'm never going to be able to unsee that now. Sorry. No one will. I never will. noticed it. <laughs> no one will. So now we've established you can't get pregnant from oral sex. Good um, to know. What about as kids are finding this out? Do you say anything like I tend to, I remember saying to my daughter when she was in second grade, this is not necessarily something that your friends know because their parents may have chosen not to share this with them. So I would encourage you to ask me any questions that you have. And I would discourage you from sharing what I tell you to your friends because it just might not be on the same clock their parents are on. Yes. But we should know, yes. parents need to know that if you're not talking to your kids about these things, 
they're going to hear about these things. So that is, I would love for you to address in the school age years, how you're talking about it. And also what concerns parents might have in deciding to talk about it. I remember a parent crying very hard because they were very upset about the school's revamped sexuality and education program. And they felt like an innocence was being lost and that their children were not ready for this. So I'd love to hear from you guys. Yeah. So um, a couple thoughts there. First of all, the number one place where this information is learned is not in the classroom. It's either on the playground or in the school bus. Really, that's where the most information exchange happens among elementary school kids. And I say that not facetiously, it's it's very true that kids are dying to share this really interesting information with everyone they know. And everyone else is very interested in hearing it. And so it's so important that parents make sure their kids get that message. It can sound like a few different things. One way that you could communicate it would be that when your child asks you that question and you're trying to buy time to figure out how you're going to answer it, you can start your answer by saying, I'm so glad you asked me that question. Before I answer it, I just want to let you know that you can always ask me questions like this about the body or about where babies are made or if the kids are older and they understand what sex is about sex. But the conversations that we have really should be conversations that we keep in, within our family. They should not be educational opportunities for you to share with everyone else because some families are not ready to have these conversations. Some kids are not asking these same questions. And so when they're ready, they will get the answers and have the conversations that they are ready for. So you could do that at the front end and that buys you a little bit of time to figure out how you want to answer their actual question. You can also do it at the back end. The only problem with waiting till the end of the conversation is that, you know, Vanessa's entire family left the dinner table. You're going to lose your audience at a certain point. So if you don't get I that, always lose my audience. <laughs> right. <laughs> Me too. So if you don't get that information in quickly and early, you may not have an opportunity. If you have missed the opportunity, that's fine. No biggie. Just circle back with your kid later that day or as soon as you remember and say, hey, remember that great conversation we just had? Just an asterisk. I want to make sure you know, and then you go from there. And I would also add, make sure they know there's nothing naughty or shameful about what you're telling them. It's just different families choose to discuss things at different times. So you don't want to think, you don't want your kid to think you're imparting this like secretive information that's inappropriate. But if they know your family well enough and you're talking about certain things, they also probably know that other families don't necessarily talk about these things. I think a related- Or vice versa. They know that every other family talks about it and yours doesn't. I mean, that happens too. Right. For no, kids. for sure. Yeah. I think a related issue, Aliza, to cover, and we can get back to specific questions, but what if a kid knows that you're an adult who will answer these kinds of questions and they're not getting those answers at home? So if a kid comes that to That might you, have happened to one of us or both of us sitting behind these microphones. Um, Yes, or all three of us. Um, so what if a kid comes to you and says, hey, Aliza, like my mom doesn't talk about this to me, but like, what is sex? You know, how do you handle that? What do you do? Yeah. Because you're both 
super flattered that a kid trusts you to come and ask you that question. Or it can happen even innocently. You know, you're driving another kid home in carpool and there's a bus Wait, they're not by. even doing it on... Uh, right. Yeah. It's not even about you. A bus drives by, there's a, some ridiculous ad on the side of the bus and the kid asks a question because they're visually prompted or they hear something in a song. So it can happen in this very um, sweet way, right. an intentional way, or it can happen totally accidentally. So I think it's worth, I mean, and we probably each have different approaches to that, but I think there are some ground rules that are worth covering about if you're an adult who is put in the position where you have an opportunity or put in a situation where a kid who's not your child is asking you about this kind of stuff. How do you handle it? So what do you do? First, I thank them for asking me, not in like a dorky, cheesy way, but like, hey, I'm really glad you felt comfortable asking me that question. Because it is, it's it's really lovely as an adult to know that a kid trusts you enough to ask you maybe what would feel like a hard question. Depending on the question, I might feel comfortable answering it if it's not like super high stakes. But if it's like, you know, is Santa Claus real kind of question or the the puberty equivalent of is Santa Claus real, which could be anything from that is the puberty know equivalent. That is. Um, you know, <laughs> something is something like what is sex? There might be more f- follow on questions. I think I would probably say that's a great question. And I'm really happy you asked me. A lot of families like to have the opportunity to tell their own kids what it is. And so I'm happy to tell you if I have permission from your grownups to answer that question for you. That's how I would handle it. I don't know if you guys would handle that differently. Yeah, I think I'd do a version, right? I mean, it's a really great idea to suggest that you might want to get permission from their grownups implying that you might ask their grownups for permission. Um, And you could even ask outright, would you like me to ask Mm, if I I can have that conversation? Because that's great. I, my simple answer is the the first half of what you said, just that, you know, you asked such a great question and I'm so flattered that you were, that you asked me, but this is one that it's personal and it's within families. And I'm, I'm not sure how your family will feel if I answer it but I love your second half. I love it. I'm going to add it on Hmm. for all the times that a random kid is in my car asking me. I mean, you must, it's probably different when you're, you're a pediatrician. So you, 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 you get to hide behind that with both the families and, you know, your answer, but in general, probably the back seat, it is less likely that you're an askable adult. The, The scenario is less likely that you're just an askable adult that people come to if you're not known to be talking about this, it probably happens to us more than it would normally happen. What is a more realistic scenario is that you're just in the back seat, Yeah. And some music comes on with language that you were not prepared to define or kids are talking about something from summer camp and, you know, any of those conversations. And maybe the older the children are, the the more likely it is that that they're asking you because it's you versus they're just like, I'm just a kid hearing a word and curious right now. So for the older kids, you probably would have a different answer. Like one kid asked me just what is a blowjob and how do you give a blowjob? And I was thinking, how did I get, uh, this does not, you're like, call (laughs) Vanessa. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I don't, I don't think my role is to tell you how to give a blowjob. (laughs) Okay. So, I'm curious to know how you answered that. 
Did, well, it were was you a, able to it set was a, the limit? I said what a blowjob is. Yep. And then I said, right now, I don't think it's my place yeah, to tell exactly. you how to give a blowjob. First of all, because that's not my role with you. Yeah, that's a great line. <laughs> and and second of all, you've never been on a date. So we have plenty of time to have these conversations. <laughs> it's like, okay, okay, but Aliza, I, I would say that parents need to know that going on a date and giving a blowjob in this particularly are not mutually in the wild west of of 2021 are not mutually I know I don't know why I said (laughs) but I appreciate your optimism right (laughs) okay but wait have have either of you been in the situation where you're not even engaged (laughs) (laughs) okay have either of you been in the situation where you're driving the car and you're listening to a conversation happening in the backseat and one child is defining for other children what a word means or concept means and they're getting it completely wrong, right? Oh, honey, I can I can do okay. you better than that What do one. you do? Okay, go. So my youngest in lockdown found it incredibly entertaining to have the number 69 be the punchline of every joke. And for those of people listening, 69 is a sexual position that has somehow become disseminated to children across America as just like a standard term, right? Oh, what page are we on? 69. And the whole class starts laughing. So this was going on for a year, right? My 10-year-old for a year was using 69 as a punchline. Now we're locked down. We're not interacting with anyone else in the world. So it was like, okay, it's funny. And then great puberty educator that I am realized at some point, oh my God, I don't know if he knows what 69 is. He just knows it's naughty and funny. Like it's a dirty term. So I turned to him and I said, hey, dude, do you know what 69 is? And it's, we're all at the dinner table and it's dead silence, right? And he's like, no. And so then I had this moment, again, this moment, luckily I'm a slow talker, a slow blinker. And I'm like, okay, what do I do? Because once you ask the question, do you know what X is? You have to be prepared to answer the question. And then he says, no. So I'm like, okay, we got to handle this. So I turned to his brother And I say, can you please define the term 69? Way to make family dinner fun. It was a highlight of of 2020. (laughs) I'll just say that. And he he did. He actually got it right. My husband at this point was literally on the floor (laughs) under the table (laughs) with his hands over his ears. Um, But I used someone else. Now, if he had gotten it wrong, I would have then corrected him, not because it's so important that they know exactly what it means, but because I brought it up and I was clarifying. And at that point, I am responsible ultimately for a correct information. So Cara, if you're driving the car, Aliza, if you're driving the car and one child is giving another child false information, but you're like, it's kind of complicated business, do you? I clarify. Correct? You clarify. I, I do. I cannot help myself. Yeah. Okay. That doesn't surprise me. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take that as a compliment. <laughs> I feel like it depends on your relationship. I've the, If I'm in the car with kids, I know them pretty well. So 
I I would interrupt and just make light of the correction, but just still give the accurate information. Because once you hear even the myth, you're more likely to believe the myth. So the false information. However, I can't say how I would navigate it, not in a scenario where I know the kids. I agree. Um, You have to kind of take the temperature of that particular crew. And when we're walking down the street, and we overhear our conversation. It's not You're like not I tap. In. Yeah, I don't tap a kid on the shoulder and say, excuse me. Cara's going to be in Overheard in LA, the Instagram <laughs> account, where it's like they have hilarious quotes. And But the Overheard is going to be like someone making a comment about sex and then Cara tapping them on the shoulder. Excuse me. And being like, actually, <laughs> I just want to clarify that for you. <laughs> Parents, the moment we've all been waiting for is finally here. Everyone ages five years and older is now eligible to get a COVID-19 vaccine. So what does that mean? It means that they can get the same protection as the rest of us at a dose that's made for them. The vaccine is safe and it's effective at preventing serious illness from COVID-19. It's finally available. It's finally their turn. Find their COVID-19 vaccine at vaccines.gov today. That's vaccines.gov V-A-C-C-I-N-E-S dot gov. We all know play is essential for child development, but did you realize that it also has a profound impact on who we become as grownups, our personality, career interests? Play builds a solid foundation for success as an adult. I used to pretend to interview my friends and now I'm a host of a podcast. (laughs) These days, it can be so easy to forget about the importance of having fun. That's why I've been loving the Once Upon a Playtime podcast. It's a show for grownups and their kiddos about the power of play. Once Upon a Playtime is the podcast from the Genius of Play, a nonprofit initiative that provides families with the latest play research, expert advice, and activities for kids of all ages. From developing empathy to advancing math skills to improving hand-eye coordination, play is critical. Once Upon a Playtime features celebrities and well-known personalities whose adult success was shaped by their childhood playtime. The interviews are transformed into storytime experiences that you can listen to by yourself or with your kids. Their newest episode features an actor and activist, Alicia Silverstone, who shares her experience as a child and actor and the power of play and how it can be used to help both kids and adults express their emotions in healthier ways It's also in a format that is really unique and it's just so fun to be able to listen to something with your child. So tune into the Once Upon a Time Playtime podcast today. You and your kids will love it. Find Once Upon a Playtime wherever you listen to podcasts. And for more info and full transcripts of each episode, go to thegeniusofplay.org. That's Once Upon a Playtime at thegeniusofplay.org. Hey, Fidel Curry Lee here. So can we all agree that mental health is okay to discuss and doesn't have to be so taboo? Life throws curveballs at us on a daily, and the least we can do is cater to the relationship that we have with ourselves. So catch a new episode of my podcast, Because Life, every Wednesday to hear me and a mental health professional go there. As we dive deep, be vulnerable, probably cry, and definitely laugh to discuss issues we all battle that become part of our mental health journey. Look, I get it. Life is hard, but talking about it together can make it a little bit easier. Tune in every Wednesday wherever you get your podcasts. 
similar to the 69 thing, I said to my best friend's son, do you know what porn Mm -hmm. is? And he said, it's really bad. Mm. And he was in at the time in sixth grade. And I said, okay, why is it really bad? And he's like, you, you are not supposed to watch it. And I said, okay. And, and I said, do you know what it is? And he said, I actually don't, but it was a moment of the same thing where kids say things. There's so many jokes made. There's so many comments made. There's so many assumptions we make, but actually knowing what they mean is a whole other ball game. So really they haven't aged out of needing definitions. And you know, you know that thing where you've met someone enough times that you're supposed to know, I don't know their name or what they do for a living or, and, and you don't. Totally. And you, you I'm missed, Aliza. Yeah. <laughs> nice to meet you, Aliza. I'm Cara. Um, but you, you've missed the opportunity to ask. And I think a lot of kids have that around sex and sex related topics. They miss so the true. opportunity to get clarification and then they're so, the 69, they're so late to the party. They're a year into telling the jokes and they they don't even know how to begin to ask. No, I think you have to define terms. Like we think of kids, middle schoolers now, we assume they're so sophisticated because they have phones. Some of them are on social media. We assume that some of them have seen porn, which we can talk about but they're still little kids and they're still, we can't make all these assumptions that they know what any of these words actually mean. One of the best things you do, Vanessa, is you always ask kids, do you know what that means? And then when they say yes, you say, okay, tell me. And it is so amazing because it gives them the opportunity to go, actually, I don't. And it's non-shaming. It's not, you know, you're not trying to prove to them they don't know, but the ones who know share with you and they get it right. And the ones who don't go, well, actually, it's an amazing way to do it. For any parent out there who doesn't know how to ask a clarifying question, that's a, it's a great disarming way. Like, hey, do you know what that means? And then, so share it with me, tell me. And you can even say, it's no big deal if you don't. I just want to make sure yeah. that we're talking about this, that you actually know what the Yeah, and I want to make sure that we can, know the same I, thing, you know, that we're having the same, using the same language or referring to the same thing if you do need to help them feel a little bit more comfortable admitting that they don't know. So can I then tackle this with the word sex? Great. And specifically kids who are in the end of grammar school, the, the fifth and sixth graders who are getting their health ed, sex ed yeah. curriculum, Right. Hopefully, hopefully, hopefully they're getting a sex ed curriculum, which really should be called health education or growth education. And also should start in third and fourth kindergarten. And so, yeah, (laughs) Yeah. totally. And, um, but so this, the word sex, what does the word sex mean? It means there are actually a number of different definitions. It depends on what kind of sex you're talking about. And so... I think even that requires a little bit of clarification, mm-hmm. both for the kids who are consuming the information in the class and for the parents who are freaking out that they're going to have the class. I've taught that class for many, many years. I don't know that I do it any better than anyone else or any worse. Um, and I don't know that I do it correctly, but the way that I have evolved to do it that works well is that I will explain to kids at the very beginning, that there are four kinds of sex or intercourse. And I describe vaginal intercourse, heterosexual vaginal intercourse, 
I describe oral sex, I describe anal sex, and I describe what I call sex with yourself or masturbation. And I say, okay, that's sort of the four general categories of how people find sexual pleasure. Now, just ask me questions. And it helps kids to understand that this word sex is actually not a standalone word, but it gets tethered to a lot of other words that can help describe intimate relationships. And that there are a lot of things that are parts of intimate relationships that are not technically sex. And sometimes the word sex is used to describe non-vaginal, oral, anal intercourse or masturbation, but it's that the the word is tethered to something else and you can help kids kind of untether it. And the reason that's important is when we talk about sex, we shouldn't be talking about it fear-based, but we do have to be realistic about, you know, what are the downstream repercussions. And masturbation gets its own category because it doesn't have any of these downstream repercussions, but oral, anal, and vaginal sex all have risks associated with them in transmission of diseases. And also for heterosexual vaginal sex, there's the risk of pregnancy. And so we do need to define the terms a little bit in terms of then what's protected sex, right? And so that's how I like to define that term at around age 10 or 11 or 12. And with porn being so pervasive, personally, I believe that the definition of that term should come sooner and sooner and sooner. I think, you know, half of all kids, um, in some studies, half of all kids have seen porn by the time they're 10 years old. It depends what study you're reading. But um, if you believe that, then then kids have to understand what sex is before they are seeing imagery. And separ- mm-hmm. so no, no, I'm glad that was exactly what I, I, I think we really today wanted to get into actual concrete language, not ideas. And you want to separate that language and that information from porn, because if that's the same conversation, then there's this association with porn and sex, and we're not interested in that association. That should be a whole other separate thing. So if the way we find out about sex is porn, that has a totally different meaning and relationship going forward. And just to clarify that, can I can I drill down sure. a little on that? The reason why you are saying that, and this is really important, is that the free porn that our kids are seeing at these young ages is not loving um, consensual sex. The free porn sex. that they are seeing tends to be violent and aggressive and non-consensual. And because of that, that is where when you asked that, when you had that conversation with that young child, Eliza, that sixth grader, and the answer was porn is bad. That is what that equation is. That when sex is being portrayed as violent, misogynistic, aggressive, non-consensual, that is bad. That is not the sex you want your kids to be having. This doesn't mean that sex is bad. And so what, what we're trying to do is separate. And by the way, it doesn't mean that all imagery around sex is bad. What we're saying is that the porn that is filtering down to kids on their phones and iPads and laptops tends to be imagery around sex that is not anywhere close to what we want our kids to experience at any point in their life in healthy, loving relationships. And also in the news, I mean, what kids hear and see about 
sex in the news, just not even having to do with porn. I mean, the first conversation I ever had with my oldest child about sex was prompted by an article he read in the New York Times about a college football team and a rape case. And he said to me, mommy, what's rape? And, you know, I gave him a sort of dashed off definition of rape, partially because I was uncomfortable and partially because I was rushing. And I said, you know, it's when someone forces someone else to have sex with them. And it wasn't until several hours later that I realized I'm not sure my kid knows what sex is. So how is he supposed to know what forced sex is? And I said to him, hey, buddy, do you know what the word sex means? And he was like, "Um, not really. And then we had the conversation all over again. And I said, hey, I'm really sorry that I used that term and I didn't even ask you. I didn't check with you if you knew what it meant. And we, we talked about what sex is. And I, of course, felt heartbroken that my first conversation with my kid about sex was connected to something about violence and lack of consent. And I think in the context of the conversation and talking about rape, I must have said something like, it's when a man forces a woman to have sex. And it was his 10-year-old brain that said to me, but can't a woman rape a man? Can't a man rape a man? Can a woman rape a woman? And it was like, he was coming at it with kind of fresh ears and eyes and could realize that I had gendered something that's actually not gendered. And so I learned something from him in the process of trying to define and discuss a really, really tough topic. I'll never, ever forget it, but I'll never get the opportunity back to frame sex to him for the first time as something that can be loving and joyful and meaningful and connecting and all of those things. I've since circled back to do that, but not. I feel like it's probably come up a few times. (laughs) And it's not a talk. No, I mean, many, 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 many talks. Many, many, many. 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 Well, okay. So, so I want to end with this idea that talking about sex is going to lead to children engaging in earlier sexual behaviors because it's not, obviously. Um, But let's address that. And then we can have another episode on all of the things that we could deep dive into regarding porn and the conversations. You don't want to be the first conversations about sex and sexuality. And Aliza, I think it's really important. I think people assume that when you teach kids about their, you know, anatomical and physiological parts around puberty, around genitalia, around penises and vaginas, then you're automatically also teaching them about sex. And the reality is that kids should know the names of every part of their bodies. Like they know their elbow and their nose. They should know their vulva and their penis because... It helps them feel connected to their body. It gives them bodily autonomy. It helps them keep themselves safe when they're not feeling well or something hurts. It's also proven that it helps keep them safe against sexual predators, that the data shows us that children who know the names of their body parts are less likely to be the victims of sexual predators. And I don't like to go fear-based, but I do think it's important to know that it is an issue of safety 
as well as all these other wonderful things. It's truly amazing that the myth of education having a direct connection with behavior in sex education, that that those two are connected in any way. That myth has lived for so many decades, generations, really. And I, I don't get it. I don't get it because we're, every single one of us, every person listening to this podcast knows that when you're educated about something, you're empowered to make better decisions for yourself. So, you know, putting a seatbelt in a car did not then result in people driving faster because they were restrained in a car. And so they knew they could drive faster because if they were in an accident, they might be safer, right? In no other part of our world do we equate education or safety measures with more reckless behavior. And so for any parent out there that was raised with this belief and still holds this belief, I think both of us, Vanessa, I want to speak for you too. We can literally promise you that- You can speak for me too. Okay. I'm speaking for all (laughs) three of us. We can literally promise you that education on this subject does not lead to more sexual activity. And in fact, when you read the data, it leads to less. It empowers kids to make decisions about how they want to share their body with other people in a more cautious and slower way. It allows kids to build relationships in connection with their sexual activity. The education around bodies, body development, and sex is protective. It is not the equivalent of putting a foot on the gas pedal. I promise. It also removes the shame from it. If you don't talk about it, kids will assume it is therefore a shameful topic. And the last thing we want is for kids to feel shame about their bodies and what their bodies do and what their bodies look like. And so to talk about it allows it to be out in the open and recognized as an okay topic to cover. And they're getting sex education from all sorts of mediums that didn't exist when we were growing up, like your phone (laughs) and social media and digital content. They're getting sex education from shows that are actually talking some in great ways, like Big Mouth and the show Sex Education, others in less constructive ways. Some, they're getting some mythical information. They're getting some real information. So your job as a parent includes the sex education of your children, whether you like it or not, because if you do not take on that job as a parent, there are lots of other people and lots of other resources that are doing it, and they may not be giving your kids the information that you want your kids to have. So if you want to say in it, then you need to actually speak and have a say in it. And if you aren't, you are, there is still, the, there, there's a very powerful message in not saying it. And that's why if, if it's a taboo topic for you, meaning it's a topic that makes your stomach turn a little bit, so there's silence around it, chances are that's something to work through as soon as possible. It's hard. Breathing helps. But silence teaches kids all sorts of messages. So 
when you're competing with the rest of the world, giving messages that you're trying to avoid, and then you're giving a loud message with silence, that is a recipe for a much more challenging outcome than taking this on. And it's hard. It's hard to have these conversations, particularly if you didn't grow up having them. And we love recommending people practice if they live with a partner, with a good friend, with a therapist, anybody. It's okay. I'll give you Lisa's number later. It's okay to, (laughs) it's okay to practice it. You know, we all roll our eyes at role play and we're like, oh, it's so annoying and it feels so awkward, but it makes it easier when you get in the moment and you are going to have these conversations. And it's super important that people don't feel like it's too late, right? If you have a 12-year-old, if you have a 14-year-old, if you have a nine-year-old and you haven't had these conversations, that's okay. It's never too late to start having these conversations because inevitably you'll have an opportunity to clarify some information that they're not quite getting right. And it's wonderful if you can be the source of that information. 